Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of LambdaCast. My name is David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron. Hello, everyone. And Logan. Howdy. So just a quick intro about um, kind of our experience with functional programming. I, for a day job, do mostly uh, JavaScript uh, for desktop applications in Electron, but my experience with functional programming has been more on the sort of Haskell, PureScript, Elm side of things. And what about you, Aaron? Uh, well, we've kind of set up this podcast to be a little bit of an educational podcast. And so I came in as a complete functional programming newbie. And I've learned a bit as we've gone along here through our episodes and um, have started applying some of what I've, I've learned into my daily work in C Sharp. And I'm looking at potentially starting up an Elm project. And so I've gone through just some tutorials on Elm. But I am still very much a functional programming beginner. And Logan. I during my day job, I do uh, JavaScript-based UI, Angular or React mostly. Uh, I get to apply a lot of functional concepts there. I get to test out uh, different forms of applying functions, querying, that kind of thing. I've also been playing around with introducing type systems into JavaScript, and that's been an interesting learning experience. Has that been Flow or TypeScript? That's been Flow. Although they're trying to keep the syntax similar enough that they're compatible with each other. With the new TypeScript? The TypeScript 2? Yeah. Interesting. Well, Flow, Flow is actively trying to keep pace with TypeScript's syntax, if that makes sense. Okay. I don't know the feature set they are, but they don't want to break away from TypeScript's too much. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, well, we love hearing from our community. Uh, we definitely get emails, and we love hearing those. So please keep it up. You can send them to contact at lambdacast.com. We definitely respond to all of those, and if it's relevant, we'll share it on the show. Um, lots of them are sort of direct questions or something, and so we'll, we'll get you an answer back on those. You can also follow us. Uh, we have a Twitter now, at uh, LambdaCast, so we'll have announcements on there. And if you want to talk to us more directly, you can go to fpchat.com and join the Slack community there, and we have a LambdaCast channel. There's many, many channels that are very uh, informative, lots of very smart people on there. But if you want to talk about the show specifically or you have questions, that's a good place to come hit us up. And we're all on there. And I'm very surprised, actually. It's, it's been very active. I mean, we, we really do have an active community in there with some people talking. And it's a great place to come in and, and ask questions or just uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, it's been very encouraging. Uh, we've also started up a, a Patreon campaign. So if you go to patreon.com slash LambdaCast, you can see what's up there. And although... The Patreon page has only been up for a month. We've had many listeners come and donate and get the ball rolling on that. So we just want to say thank you very much to everyone who's uh, donated that, that is able to. If not, we totally understand, but we definitely appreciate that show of appreciation for us. And our last kind of announcement thing is uh, episode one uh, has been transcribed by Eric Inman. Uh, an associate of Logan. So gigantic shout out to Eric for going through a pretty long episode and doing a transcription. That is uh, quite quite the achievement or accomplishment, not accomplishment, quite the effort. Feet. Quite the feat. Thank you. Uh, so thank you very it, much. But I hope he like, made me sound really smart. Like I, I wouldn't mind at all if he like, put in some better words for me. <laughs> Just like... It takes creative liberties with the transcription process. Yeah, exactly. Like all of a sudden, maybe they have a British accent in, in his <laughs> transcription. I'm not sure. Well, That'd be awesome. Where can we find that? Uh, that will, is linked off the first episode in the description of episode one. On SoundCloud. On SoundCloud, yes.
I don't know of any way to embed that in like a podcast itself. I don't think there's a standard like transcription RSS feed thing, but I'll be looking into that. Not that I'm aware of either, but uh, perfect. So episode, if you go to episode one, you can find it right there, kind of like where you find the show notes. Yeah, it's in the show notes. Exactly. All right. So this episode, we're talking about these things that kind of come around. Uh, you can't get too far into a um, functional first language without running into it. Well, I should clarify. You can't get too far into a statically typed functional first language without running into these. And these are ADTs, or algebraic data types. And probably most people have at least heard of those in passing. Uh, is that something that you're familiar with, either one of you? I have not heard of it, either in passing or otherwise. So this would be new for me. I get to use it quite a bit in Flow, which is very nice. And my first thought was actually it was going to be abstract data types. So. Right, and that's actually um, extremely common, because abstract data types is something that perhaps is thrown around as ADT. Um, so let's let's uh, talk about what that is, and then we can see how ADTs are. are we'll spend the rest of the episode, of course, talking about um, algebraic data types. So an abstract data type, how, how do you understand an abstract data type? I actually uh, just have heard the term. I don't know what an abstract data type is. So my understanding of an abstract data type is a data type in which you um, don't get to control the constructor. Like the constructor is not something that you can get access to. So you can only receive values of that type. You can't make your own or at least outside of some interface that controls the creation of them. OK. So you might, if you think of like uh, something that you can only get out of a factory in like a Java.net kind of world, um, that could be abstract because you can't actually get at, you can't make your own values. You can only get values by requesting them from the factory or service or whatever. Aren't you supposed to call those object mothers now? I, I can't keep up. Um, I mean, sure. I'm, I'm sure there's go by many names. I do recall that. I, I, I know what Logan is referencing. Um, but uh, so and if you're using a library in the, in the C-sharp world that you might have a type that I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how that would, how would it come up, but you might have a type that you couldn't stand, instantiate. You can just get an existing copy. And like pass it around, do stuff with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is not what we're talking about, although that um, can be a valuable thing. <laughs> you know, that'd be its own topic. Um, not super common in the functional world. But uh, so ADT in this sense is an algebraic data type, which of course means there has to be something to do with math because algebra is right there in the it's, name, right? It, it sounds math. -y. It sounds pretty math. -y. For sure. It's going to be a pretty big coincidence if it's not related to math. And <laughs> right. My, my first exposure to this was through a Scott Walshen talk. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing Scott his last name correctly? Scott I think. Walshen? Yeah. Which is the F sharp for fun and profit. Yeah, yeah. And he seemed to go over it that made sense to me. He actually embraced kind of the mathematical approach to it. And I think F sharp follows that pretty well. Like like it uses like times to to do um, like a product kind of relationship. Which we haven't gotten to yet, plus. but we will soon. Yeah. So yes, they, they, there's like a almost like a mathematical notation to it. Mm -hmm. What it is? Well, right. well, what are they though? Okay. So yes, let's let's talk about this. There's two ways to go about building your own custom data type. And okay. one is very familiar to us, and the other one is almost completely foreign. And when people talk about ADTs, they're almost always speaking about this other one, which, uh, so Logan mentioned a, a product type. This will be the uh, sum type. If, if you remember our talk of monoids, we had two monoids. We had the sort of additive monoid and the multiplicative monoid. And they were mm -hmm. both things you could do with numbers, you know, integers or real numbers. Um, but they were distinct from each other. It's going to be kind of be that kind of a relationship where there's like two ways of examining of uh, 
reasoning about the same set of raw material, if that kind of makes sense. So let, let's talk about the one that people know, uh, what a product type is, okay? So if you think about ways of combining individual values, um, a product type simply says, I can have a bag of multiple of these things all at the same time. So if you've ever seen a struct in C or C sharp, an object, a record, any of these names, right? Uh, even, a, even a dictionary can kind of fit this definition, although that's not great. Um, usually we're talking about like a, f a fixed, um, finite, enumerated uh, number of like fields of a type. Does that kind of make sense? Sure. I mean, it, it, you, yeah, it, I think so. It's a, it's a set of properties that are all tied together. Like you have a customer and a customer has a name, which is a string, an ID, which is an integer, and a, you know, whatever, da, 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 down the road. And if you have a customer, you have all of these Yeah, things. it's a, I mean, it's it's similar. We, we could say it's a list of these things, but it's not just a list. It's a, but it's not a list it's because a, it's... It is a combination, and that's what's important about it. Right, and, and it's, it's sort of the, unknown. What's the difference? So if you had a list of, wait, are you talking, talking about having a list of customers? Oh, I'm talking about just yeah, the sure, customer customers. itself. So a customer... <laughs> is a finite enumeration of sort of okay. name field type things of a certain type. Okay. And the named part is not super important, but... If, if you have like a person struct of some kind, and it's got like a first name and a last name, you have to have both of those together to have a person, right? So, so your entire domain of first names combines with the entire domain of last names and your your structure represents something that could be any of the combination of those. Um, I, I think I follow you. You're saying that each every, every field is kind of required then in this in this bag of properties. It, it's required, but it also makes you think in terms of the actual domain that that thing can have. So let's talk about that real quick about types because this is, we haven't gotten a whole lot into types, and this is going to be kind of one of our first forays. So let, let's think of let's I want to throw out there this idea of think about a type as a set of all possible values that can inhabit that type, that can exist and still be, you know, satisfy the requirements of that type. Right. So you might say, what, what are the possible uh, values for a Boolean? There's only two. And there's only true, true and false. And you might right. say, what yeah. are the possible values for a string? And that's practically indefinite, right? Quite a, quite a Basically little, infinite, quite a right? large number. For all intents and purposes, yeah. it's infinite. Same, you could say integers, it's a different infinity, <laughs> but it's basically infinite. Well, I guess, I mean, it, it depends right. on your language. To two to the 30 second power or whatever. Yeah, actually, so using. in that sense, if we, if we don't yeah. have like auto growing int kind of uh, things, uh, you know, big numbers. Same thing with string, okay. I think there's probably a character limit. Usually they don't call those integers anymore. Yeah, it's a good point. That's good point. Like... So you do have a limit. It's a very large number, but it's, you know, 4.2 yeah. billion numbers, possible yeah. values. So when we talk about product type, what, what Logan's kind of saying here is, Let's say that we had um, a, a, a class, struct, record, whatever, that had two fields, and they were both Booleans. We said that if you have a single Boolean, there's two possible values. So there's two possible states for that. But if you have two Booleans mm -hmm. as part of your, your thing, your object, how many possible states, you know, how many inhabitants are there of the type Boolean and Boolean? You know, something that contains two Booleans. You take the number of the first one and multiply it by the number of the second one, and you get four. Right, so there's four possibilities. And so if you introduce another Boolean, then you're multiplying by two. Now again. you have now there's eight possibilities. Yeah, now you've got eight possibilities, and that's why it's called there. a product type, because <laughs> you take the number of possibilities in each one of its fields and multiply them together. Okay, 
Um, it doesn't seem like many, it, it seems like most, like as soon as you introduce a new juror string, then it's like, oh, and now multiply by 4.2 billion. It's a very, yes. So it gets very large very quickly. Um, but we're just describing the possibility space. We're not saying what it actually has. In yeah, then this is just what it could have. So the point, the point here is that not that, you have a good point that, yes, as soon as you introduce an int or a string or something, the number gets very large very quickly. Um, and, and what Logan's saying is it's more like being aware that that's what we're doing, that by introducing a string, we kind of inflate the number of possibilities to almost infinity, mm -hmm. which if you remember from a lot of the things we've been talking about, we want to intentionally limit our set of possibilities because it's so much easier to either A, reason about it, or B, make assertions about it, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the stuff with the parametric polymorphism was all about limiting what we could do so that we can make strong guarantees about things. Oh, and so when possible then, if you had like a, an enum instead of a string, you'd want to use that enum because then you're really, really limiting the number of values that can go in there. Yeah, strings can represent enums very easily, but you know we'd much rather use those because it's like, oh, I only have four of these I have to worry about now, and the compiler will verify it for me. So I'm not sure what the necessarily what the benefit is there, but I, I, I mean, if we're trying to get that number low, that's one way you could do it. Yeah. Right. So that, that's a good example of um, where introducing a string might be a less desirable thing because it makes it a lot harder for say the compiler to know what's going on the compiler cannot guarantee that you've handled every possible string case right but it certainly can do that for an enum which means it can yell at you and say hey you forgot about this one mm -hmm. and that's a check i would never have with a string or an integer so like you're saying like i don't know what the value is of keeping you know using the enum. Right. if, that's you, if you were being honest your your case statement would need a default Right. Yeah, for any that says, sort like, of unbounded type. For all the strings yeah. I didn't handle, here's my here's my fault right. through. So product types, yes, they, they get very large very quickly. And enums, an enum type uh, structure is one way of not introducing effectively giganto number <laughs> that you're multiplying by and mm -hmm. actually keeping your number of states uh, a little more reasonable. Like it's not like we're going to write them all out on paper, but like you could if you wanted to. Right. That's actually like a thing that could be done. And you could actually look at them and say, hmm, is this exactly what I want? Whereas as soon as you have a string, it's like, well, we're done because, you know, it's basically infinite. I'm not trying to get, like, get ahead of the conversation here, but it also seems that often there's only certain fields that actually care about what the values actually are in them. Like if we have this customer, yeah, maybe we care a lot about the ID and maybe there's some other parts. But really often, like, yes, having their address stored as a string makes it an infinite number of values. But we're not often working with that all that much in our in our on the programming side anyway, unless we're just searching for it. Because you'll never do any logic with it. Yes. Okay, so that that's fair. Yeah. If it's like a, you know, basically data comes in, data goes out, and you're never going to inspect that data, mm -hmm. you may be much less sensitive to the the number of possibilities but versus I'm like sure. account so status. I'm, yeah, and I'm I'm kind of waiting. I'm sure you're going to tell talk a little bit more about. Uh, okay, so that's that's great if you have a, a struct or something with a limited number of possibilities then it's easier to work with in the sense of, okay, well, there's only so many possibilities, and so you can handle them all. Yeah, that's what we're getting at here. If you're doing logic on, on certain fields, then those fields you're doing logic on, it does make sense that you want them to be limited if possible. And in traditionally, in most imperative langues, uh, languages, we uh, everything the only sort of structure we have is the product type. We, they don't call it a product type because there's nothing to like distinguish it from, so it doesn't really need a name. It's just, you know objects or records no, or classes. We, we don't think of it as a product type. We don't, we don't go and say, I'm compounding these things now. Right. You just And we, de we definitely don't say when we make an enum that we're reducing the possibility space of a value. Right. So um, 
because of that, because we can only sort of glue together like primitive types and almost all of our primitive types outside of an enum, if your language has enums, are incredibly large, practically unbounded, you know, like for all intents and purposes, like 4 billion. Yeah, it's a finite number, but like whatever, it's way bigger than anything we can deal with in our heads. So the only thing we can do is glue really big numbers together. So, you know, we deal with this problem of state all the time. And I don't mm -hmm. think it's very surprising that, yeah, it's really hard to keep track of state when the number of possible states you can be in is uh, 4 billion times 4 billion times 4 billion times infinity times infinity times infinity yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> times two, right? Because there's like a bullion. Did you, did you make sure you accounted for all of those? Right, and that's like uh, a small structure class or whatever, right? Um, so that's, you know, I'm not saying that that structure is not useful. It absolutely is useful. But as the only thing we have to work with, it feels like unnecessarily powerful. Because it's very powerful, right? Mm -hmm. But unnecessarily so. That's like the gigantic like sledgehammer of like data structure kind of things. Well, and it feels often in functional programming, and we've talked about this before, that what we're doing is saying you you give up some of that power. I mean, we talked about that in the in the C sharp episode recently. That when you let yourself do anything, it's very difficult to know what someone is doing without looking at exactly all their code, you know, very very closely. Yep. Whereas if they're limited in what they can do, that, that's a big part of what functional programming, programming seems to be is this idea that well, if you limit yourself to what you actually need, then it's a lot easier to reason about what it is you're going to do or to even intuit what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if there's a product type, there must be another type. And Logan, do you want to tell us about some types? Some types. So some types are like an either or type of relationship. This is S-U-M sum, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like like addition kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just just some old ordinary. <laughs> some, some old <laughs> this type. This is some yeah. type. <laughs> there's some types type. and some other type. Okay. Yeah. Um, a great, a great one for this is like maybe you've got a string and it could also be an integer, but it can't be both of them. So you're going to get one or the other. Okay. And, and in functional, static functional languages, I don't think you can do overloading. Is that, That's is that not very common. And in fact, what you're talking about is incredibly com uncommon as well, because you're talking about a kind of a flow specific thing. We can say this, this type mm. is either a string or an int. That's actually pretty uncommon. I thought Haskell could do that pretty easily too. No, no. So is there a broader definition? I mean, for isn't, that, isn't that how like maybe? Okay, work? so uh, I get what you're saying here. Okay, so yes, uh, in a roundabout way, that is correct. Um, but it's not a naked string or int. Like there's sure. there's kind of a. I, I'm making something up. Gotcha. So arbitrarily, let me go with the simplest possible sum type I can come up with. Boolean. Yeah. Boolean is either true or false. And you could think of that as an enum with only two cases, right? That's another yeah. way to think about it. Sure. Um, so it's kind of like, what if you could not just, so what if you could make up an enum and you could attach data to the enum, if that makes sense, like the enum values. So you're going to say, um, I have a thing, I have an A and a B. And my A, what was the two things you had, Logan, string in it? String yeah. in it. So in I have case, either, yeah. like I have the A case of my enum, which has a string that goes along with it, like like a one field struct that has a string in it, that kind of thing. Or I have a mm -hmm. B, which has a, has one field, which is the int that goes along with it. So it's like an enum with a payload, if that kind of makes sense. Um, in the Boolean case, there's no payload. Like being true or being false is the payload. There's like there's literally one bit of information encoded in here. <laughs> but mm -hmm. in the in the other case where we have A and B, you're either A or B because with an enum you have to pick one, right? But if you're A, you also have this string. And if you're B, you have this int. So we're not talking, it's not applicable here. Um, 
to say that in an enum you have say like one equals this two equals this when you're making an enum that's kind of one of the properties is you can give like the integer value and then the string value but i mean that's not the exact same thing here because yeah you're saying, let's ignore like, that part because no, yeah, i mean okay. that's not i mean that's a like an implementation it's not, not sure, right? it's not it's not what we're talking about yeah it sounds like it sounds like what we're saying is we have our enum value one and it, and when you have enum value one we get any string we want attached to that or not even a string it could be a a, a record right or it could be an object of some kind that comes from a C, C++ background, right? Like, I don't even think Java was very late to the enum game, if I remember correctly. Uh, maybe C Sharp Like, you it. mean being able to assign, like, a, a fixed value to it? Right. Yeah, and, and there's languages that have enums that don't have any concept of that kind of thing. I oh, okay. don't think that C enforces this, but hypothetically, if you, could, if you could imagine, like, okay, you know, maybe all of these enum values that I have, which are just symbols in my code, Maybe all of them are backed by numbers, but as far as the type system is concerned, they aren't numbers. They're this enum. They're the same type. You you can't exchange them without going through some conversion process, mm -hmm. right? You can be able to say, "Oh, give me the the backing integer value of this, so I can go stuff it in a database or something." That yeah. doesn't understand so any of this. Stuff. I don't want to get hung up on enum. That is just a a starting point to form an intuition. It's it, I'm not saying it's literally a C sharp enum with this extra feature added on. I'm saying imagine a hypothetical enum system in which you can attach a piece of data to the enum values. Does that make sense, or Aaron? Um, yeah, it's kind of does it i mean it, it sounds again a little bit a little bit similar to like if we had an object then we could have uh you know a equals string and b equals int but what you're saying is that that's not exactly what it is because we don't really have a and b available we have a or b right because what you're describing is a product and what we're describing is a sum and the reason it's a sum is because you have either uh all the possibilities of a or all the possibilities of b not all the possibilities mm -hmm. of A times, like like you have, add up all the possibilities of A and B independently. You're not multiplying them because you never have both of them at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Like you have two booleans, you just have four here. Where if you have three booleans, you just have six possibilities because you either have right. true false for A, true false for B, or true false for C, and only one of those. Right. Types. So it's like A true, A false, B true, B false. Those, are, those, those are your possible. Some values. types don't make sense for three bools because really it's just one. Sure. Bool. Well, I mean, they could. You, you'd need you'd need three. You need two uh, two more things that had dual states to them. Uh, but you could have three things that all have an on or off status, like an event. And but you're only going to get one of them. You're only going to get one right. of them, right? But you could say I take in a message. Message is my type, and I have three ways of getting my message. I guess that's A, B, true. and C, and they all have like some trivial payload, like a bool. I mean, it's it's unlikely. I, I agree with you, but I, I mean, yeah. it's valid as a as a sure. type, uh, and it's simple, right? We don't have to worry about billions <laughs> if we just talk about bools. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of primitive types that have that property. They all get to very large numbers very quickly. That, that means that there's some like runtime information that's attached to that for to tell those apart though, right? That That's correct. So in most systems, so just like an enum, right? You can tell, uh, you can sort of do a switch or whatever on a enum value and you can say, well, in this case, I do this. In that case, I do that. And down, down the road you go, right? Everyone's running into okay. that kind of thing. So in, in most functional languages, you have sort of super powered switch statements called pattern matching. It's the same sort of thing. And you can match on the different the different ways of constructing your type. So real quick, let's just let's talk about this. Um, so these are called some types. They're also co sometimes called discriminated unions, and they're also called variant types, depending on what language you're in. So if you're yeah. in F sharp 
or flow they're called discriminated unions if you're in haskell or uh elm i think does it this way and pure script they're called some types and if you're in like ocaml and i'm not sure if that's true of ml they're called variant types they're all the same thing which one's right um <laughs> whichever one you like that's the one that's right <laughs> but they all have the structure of i have a single type and and this is um I know th this actually follows from Enum, I think, pretty closely. I have a single type and multiple sort of ways of getting a value of that type. So if you think of an Enum called like uh, account status, and it's like opened, closed, up to date, late, or something like that, right? You might have four statuses. Um, mm -hmm. Open, closed are not types. They're values of the type account status. Does that make sense? Right? Those are different. There's only one type. Uh, languages like Haskell allow you to just arbitrarily make up signal symbols like this, right? Uh, just kind of like how you when you make up symbols for an enum. Yeah. So, well, um, yeah. The question is, does that make sense that open and closed are values and not types um, for an, like an account status, right? It, it is a type, and this is these are the two possibilities I can have. A account status values. is the type, and open, closed, up to date, late, whatever, are the possible values. Okay, and yeah, you're right. It is helpful to think about that kind of as an as an enum. Um, in a, in a sense, it's not exactly. What it's it not is, exactly, but I just kind of think this. of it vaguely in the realm of an enum. Okay, so usually this is written out as some sort of like a data declaration. If you've ever looked at Elm or Haskell or whatever, uh, actually Elm uses the word type. I think instead of data here, um, but it'll be something like if we were to describe this, it would be data boolean, uh, and there it's capitalized because it's a type. Data boolean equals true, the vertical pipe bar meaning or false. That's usually how it's written out. And the true and the false are usually capitalized. So it kind of looks like they're types, um, but those are called data constructors. They, they construct a value of type Boolean. True and false both give you a Boolean value. Okay. And so if we had our account thing, we might have um, account status. And then we would have, um, let's say, opened with a date attached to it. So you either have open and a date, closed mm -hmm. and a date, up to date or current and uh, let's say late with a float of how much you're you owe because you're late on your payment so we have like four cases okay and yeah you're in one of these accounts you're in one of these so there's only one type account yeah. status four different ways to get an account status four different data constructors day and it's important to note too with these are these are a combined uh product and some types right um when I say right. um, you could say it's it's any one of these statuses, but these statuses can be accompanied by their own additional. Yeah, data, I guess right? since we don't have two on any one of them, they're not they're a product of one value. So in, in that sense, yeah, I think they still are are product types. So that that's correct. Yeah. The um, open or the closed and the date forms a product type. It's just a product type with only one field, and then mm. we are oring mm. them together via a discriminated union or, or some type to say that you can only be in one of these states at a time. So Aaron, earlier you said, when we talked about payload and we said like the payload could be like an int or a string, you said, or an object, right? <laughs> you brought that up and that's absolutely yeah. correct. You can have a whole gigantic product type or another some type attached as mm -hmm. the payload. And you're not okay. actually limited to one payload. You can actually have, you know, sort of as many, um, well, if you think of if you think of all the things that you can attach to um, one of these data constructors as being one product type, then yeah, basically you only have one payload. It's it's a product type. Uh, the, the the beauty here of this is when I 
you know, when we're doing something really practical, like I want to like um, retrieve a value from a database, right? I, I expect to only get ever one of these records back because I've ensured somehow that I have a unique identifier. Go get me that record. Uh, and then the, the, the function signature for that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's return value is either that, that data structure I'm expecting or to error. So you would have a data, data type declaration of type mm -hmm. database response that's either yeah. success of payloads, yeah. <laughs> like you know, object right. from database, or database failure with code or string or you know, like integer for the code. So, so, some indication of what yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you can only ever get one of and those. You can't have both. We have to handle both of those cases if we're going to like unwrap to get the to get the actual value out. That's a nice, real practical example too, because that kind of cleans up for me where you might end up using this or seeing this, and how like you could use this in the real world is to is to say, okay, well, you're going to get a couple things back, and you're not throwing an exception all of a sudden, like you have to do in C sharp where you break where you break flow, and you have to handle it pretty differently. Breaking flow is like a crazy thing to do as far as your ability to reason about what your code does. I, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan, but. That's it's kind of other. like any any given function that you have could return a value or it could return another value, which is an exception. But when mm -hmm. it returns that value, now you're going to start unwinding all of your flow. It's like there's checks absolutely everything that's hidden. And and we could talk about like let's say we don't have some types. We don't um, we can't model it in that way. Could could we accomplish mm -hmm. this in say like vanilla C sharp? Well, so you you go into the database and you make this call and it gives you back some sort of, you know, some sort of object that has like a success, successful Boolean flag, or it's got its own enum in there to tell you basically which of the two it represents. And then it has to have all the fields for both possible cases in there. And you only look at the fields that correspond to which of the two did you get back? Did you get back a result of, of your, whatever your database result type is? Of your or did you get yeah, yeah. a string or ant or whatever of your error? And you have to look at the little enum right. to tell you which of the two um, you got. And that's actually what this compiles to in most of these languages under the hood. It just does that. It just generates that object, you know, the class or whatever, under the hood or struct. Mm -hmm. And it does that for you. But from a logical perspective, from your own like thinking about this, you do have that enum-like thing where the compiler says, hey, I see that you've handled the success case, but you didn't handle the failure case. Uh, you either need a default or you need to handle it. And I'm going to make that's you do the, it. That's the important part there is like you, you chose to use this value, but you didn't completely unwrap it. You, you wanted to just use it directly, but there may not be a value there at all. You, you actually have to go and do something with that. Well, and you have to handle all possible things that come back. And we can know what all right. the possible things are. Like the compiler doesn't yell at you if you didn't check for any possible string, right? Because it's ridiculous. You could, you, there's no such thing. But here we have a finite describable like list of the possibilities the compiler can certainly make you handle all of those. And that becomes very handy. And the way I see this most um, strongly impact is in the design phase, that when you start off with something, you almost always have a fairly finite set of like states that you can get into or things that you want to deal with, like like Logan's database example, right? Like it's going to succeed or it's going to fail. Like, or let's go for a, a little more complex situation, an HTTP request. So you're going to make an HTTP request, right? Well, what could happen? Mm -hmm. Well, it could succeed, and you get back a response, which is like a header and a body, right? Mm -hmm. What else could happen? Could fail. It could fail, and you're going to get like an HTTP like error code, yeah. right? 
Um, and maybe that's enough. Maybe that's maybe we could do it that way. But we could design our API where the different failure states are more discreetly enumerated. I think um, most errors, even if they're like you never got a response from the server properly or something, come back as an HTTP code. Except I don't think timeouts do. Okay. Oh, that'd be like a third state. So you could, well, oh, let's just take the errors though. So I think that's the very like straightforward way to inter to translate it. You have like success or failure again, mm -hmm. but don't we actually kind of like have a pretty finite number of errors that could happen? Like we have, we have kind of like the 400 layer errors, like we couldn't talk to the server. And there's no 600 error codes, right? Right. Let's go above that. <laughs> right. It's, it's finite. So at there. the worst case, we could enumerate every error code in the 200s, 300s, and 400s, or we could kind of wrap it up a little bit more and say it was a server error, is a 500 error, right? And then the code that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Or it was a 400 error, meaning you kind of requested something that's not there, or you didn't have access. Maybe those are worth discreetly pulling apart. Or there's some sort of you know 200 level error. Um, but then when you're checking, you automatically are breaking out the errors that are related to like networking from the errors that are related to like the server being down versus, you know, uh, you, you've kind of segmented your errors into like nice discrete buckets. So when you go to check for them, you aren't just like, and here's the one place where I check for every possible thing that might be wrong. Right. So when you're designing your APIs or, or your, at least just, let's just say with a function, a single function, when you're designing that and you're kind of working on the data model for, for your system, you can think in terms of like, is it possible to finitely enumerate all my errors? Because if it is, that's really useful. It means the compiler now can check. Because if you have server error, network error, and just like generic error, right? If we had those three and success, um, then the mm -hmm. server could tell us like you haven't handled one of those. Like, hey, you didn't tell me what to do if there's a network error. But it couldn't, if there's an int attached to each one of those, which is the error code, the compiler couldn't tell us, hey, you haven't handled four or threes or four or fours, right? It, it couldn't make that distinction because there's just an int as the payload. But, but since we know that they're HTTP return codes, we can do something with them. Yeah, we could we could list everyone out, which might seem horrible to you at first. And then you realize like, oh, um, every single thing that could possibly go wrong, I can make the compiler point that out to me and I handle it some way. And, and you can group them together too. Sure. Yeah, you could just use the same function as the handler for all of them or something. A great example of this because like the the codes are grouped together in groups of 100. Right, like everything in the 200 range is considered a form of success. Um, 300 is like, I'm not here. 400 is like, um, you're not allowed to get this. Some, I don't remember. Uh, and 500 is just like, something went wrong entirely. Right. Uh, and, and so you could group those together in families, and then you could group all those families together and say, that's my HTTP codes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, I think what looks at here is you could have a network error code type that has like 15 different things. It's this or this or this or this or this. And it's like 15 values. And then you could take, you could make another type that's HTTP response error code that's either a network error code or a server error code or a, you know, whatever the 300s represent, I forget mm -hmm. um, the grouping for that. It, it's it's like not here. Internal. Yeah, okay, it's not here. That it's kind somewhere of thing. else, yeah. Missing, we'll call it missing. And, and so you can, you can build up multiple layers of these you can use the, the some types like within the higher layers of, mm -hmm. of it, and you can build. Yeah, you could even take that next layer and, and just say, well, there was a there was an error of some kind. Yeah, and then you could say there was either and a success or an HTTP error. Yeah, and then you can drill down to the HTTP error and say, okay, I want I want to handle at this level, or I want to handle every single possible error if it for some reason it's necessary. Exactly, and you can choose kind of where to handle that. Yep, that's a very good example of that kind of thing.
Yeah, so this is a very powerful thing at the data modeling layer. And I find that it is almost always what I hear people say that they miss most when they go from like, like they transition into an F-sharp or Elm or something, and then they go back and they immediately miss this because it's so like uh, immediately useful <laughs> and like fairly obvious of how you would employ this. And it radically, to me at least, it radically shifts the way I design things. Yeah, I think it. a lot of times people say, um, I don't know how to structure things because I'm used to OO and like classes and inheritance and stuff. And as soon as you get into like some product types, it becomes much more straightforward on how you would model things. Like once you start thinking in, term, in those terms, such that when I go back to a non-functional uh, first language, I try to recreate the, the some type structure in my language. Because I mean, it'll have product types of some sort because every mainstream language has that. We were gonna talk about um, pattern matching and we got distracted. Right. So pattern matching is uh, the ability to, it, sort of in the same way that with an enum, you can do like a switch and then you're like case, 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 case for all your uh, your cases. It's, just, it's a more powerful it, version. It's like a more powerful version that would, um, if you're familiar with like ES6's like destructuring kind of thing, where you can say like, um, if I have uh, this object on the right side, on the left side, I want to pull out the fields A and B and like make local variables out of them and, and kind of grab their values out of that object. I guess that's right. It's kind of like a combination of that. and a It's a case statement, statement that can also destructure is basically what a pattern match is. Yeah. So the idea is there is um, if we have our, um, let's go back to our um, account system. So you could say in the case where I have a closed account, mm -hmm. I want to match it. But I also want that data that's associated with it to be called closed date. And I want a local variable that's in scope called closed date that is the data that's attached to the closed enumeration, the closed data constructor. Because you, you're going to do something with that closed date, some, something semantic, right? Where is this actually happening? Like, where is this? Um, so you can do it in um, a lot of languages have basically the equivalent of a case statement, like a switch. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be case of kind of a thing. Like literally, sure, case of, and then account status equals. We're saying account status equals closed, right? Case of account status closed. Uh, the case of account status. It would be case of like closed or account status dot closed or something like that. So, so sure, I'm saying okay. in the case where the value was created through this enumeration, this data constructor, yes. I want to get the thing that's attached to it, that value that's attached to it, and then I mm -hmm. have my handler function to the right of it. You know, do this code over here. So, in the case of account closed, give me the close date, and then I'm gonna like do something. Um, it, that just sounds like you're just saying like close date equals the value of account status dot closed. Um, sounds like you're just assigning. Yeah. So, so the, we, we kind of hand waved with the whole, like how data is attached to the enumerated value. <laughs> Cause that doesn't mm -hmm. actually happen in C sharp. Um, this is basically the pattern matching in a lot of languages. This is an implementation detail, not like a super important thing. Pattern matching is the only way to get the value out of the data constructor. So you would make okay. a new one by saying. Uh, account status dot closed or just closed. Usually it's in scope and you only have to say like closed. So you say closed. Mm -hmm. And then that is a function that produces a new account status. That's what closed is. That's why it's a data constructor. It makes a new value of the type. So you'd say closed and then you would feed in, you know, whatever is required in this case, like a date. So you say closed and date okay. and you get back a new value of type account status. And then you say, okay, so given an account status, how do I go back to the date that was used to create it? And pattern matching is usually the form uh, that it takes in, say, like your Elms, Haskells, PureScripts, F-sharps, those kinds of languages. That sounds roundabout, to put it nicely. 
doesn't it doesn't sound i mean maybe it's a lot easier that maybe we're just putting a name on something that's actually pretty simple when when i first looked at this i was like oh great we took the state pattern and we went back to switch case which we kind of agreed was the stone ages or whatever because in oo it's replaced with a dispatch on like polymorphic dispatch right right you expect to like okay everything's going to implement the interface and then i'm going to pull this and not be this you know big switch statement it does feel like an anti it is an anti pattern in oo um is not an FP. <laughs> right. And, and kind of the beauty of it is, is like that thing that you get back, they don't have to be remotely related to each other. They don't have to share a common API, or, you know, an inter API interface or anything. So you're talking about the, the different branches kind of of the of the type. You could say I've typed foo that has right. A and B and A and B don't have to share any fields. They don't have to be anything like A or B. Neither one of them actually has to have any fields associated with them at all. They could be two nope. completely different structures. One's an int, one's a string. Co completely unrelated to each other, as a matter of yeah. fact. Um, but you can right. still kind of union them together with this operation or with this declaration. How are we unioning A and B together? I thought we were just getting a single, I thought pattern matching allowed us to get a single value out. Discriminated union, right? It's a, uh, we're unioning them in the sense that um, they're both possibilities, that they both satisfy foo. Both A's and B, both things created by A and things created by B are both foo. Of type foo. Oh, okay, okay. Right. Okay. And so anytime that you say I'm handling a foo, compiler's like, wait a second. Now you, now you got to like drill in and tell me which one yeah, you're going to handle. Yeah, tell me what to do if it's an yeah, A, tell me what to do if it's a B. Tell me how you're going to handle each one. Yes. More accurately. <clears throat> and uh, this is one of those things where probably it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it doesn't sound super fantastic listening to it. Um, I have never met someone who used it and was like, eh, I'm, I'm good with just like objects. Like everyone I've ever seen like use this never wants it, to touch yeah. anything else i i gotta get behind that that's that's definitely been my experience with it is it it at first it seems like what the hell am i doing i'm going down the dark path here right these people have sold me a bill of goods it's it's not turned out to be that way for me at least it's it's turned out like okay well that just that composes nicely into a function now yeah. right as opposed to i have to have a state object that's just not necessary anymore and and what you find is that in mm. a lot of these static functional languages, uh, pretty much all of the types are built out of this at some level. There's very, very few types that aren't some sort of, uh, well, I mean, there's straight up product types for sure, but there's a lot of some types as well. Like those are very common. Can we talk through like, so maybe is a, it sounds like it would be a good example. Is it, maybe is a, is a some type, right? Because you're getting either the, the first part or the second part. Yeah, so what are what are our two parts for maybe? If I recall correctly, I don't actually remember. I wouldn't maybe as exactly, but if I remember, isn't the first part um, like a Boolean has a value or not, and the second part's the actual value? That's close. Uh, it's sort of like the discriminate the the some type the discriminating union takes care of if it has a value or not. So it's either the right. case where you have nothing, which is called nothing, or uh, sometimes it's called mm -hmm. none. Like in F sharp, it's called none. Well, that's right. Maybe yeah, that's okay. Yeah, maybe it's either okay, and it's none, or it's uh, the, the value. The interesting thing here is like the type information isn't necessarily there in the runtime. Like you could peel all of it off in the end. All the all the types of stuff is done. It's just made sure that your runtime code isn't dumb. That you've handled all your mm -hmm. cases. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. so you were correct. You mentioned earlier that there has to be a runtime component to this, and it is true that. However, it's encoded under the hood in the same way that you're, do you care how your enums are encoded? Like if, if C sharp right. wants to make those be like strings just, under the hood, a single byte maybe you don't this. care. Yeah. Or a single right. byte if that could work. I mean, maybe it can't work. Yeah. Um, if it's an int, great. You know, you kind of don't care, right? Same thing here. The, the point is that the, the logic is consistent. 
Well, there, I, I think our benefit here is um, that compile time checking and like we, one of the big guarantees that you get with most functional programming is this is not going to crash an error out. You've handled all the cases. Like you're not going to get a runtime yeah. error. Yeah. Um, and that's because this is just one more way that it sounds like it's helping you handle all the yes. cases. And so specifically here, the two cases of a maybe, just because I, I do want to do a more complex example, because I think that's useful. So you have a maybe that's either nothing or just some value. Now he means mm -hmm. capital J just. Yeah, capital J. So there's two ways of constructing a maybe. Nothing, which takes no additional information, or just, which takes a value of some type, some arbitrary type. It's polymorphic because you don't actually care, right? So you're, it's sort of like you have a maybe of type T, where mm -hmm. the maybe is whatever type, and it has two. Yeah. Um, so one way that if you want to implement this, let, let's bring it back to like a, maybe a C sharp or a Java kind of land. Um, one way of implementing this would be you have a maybe class with a private constructor, and it has two static uh, methods on it. Nothing, which takes zero parameters and sets an internal private field that picks um, that it's the nothing side of the <laughs> of the two possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like we talked about this before with the has value, but yeah, we can say the has value is, and is then, false. Or just, which takes a T because you're a maybe of type T. So just takes a T and sets the internal like mm -hmm. value field, which is of type T to whatever that value is. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of how this works. Yeah. So it's like you have a maybe parameterized by a because maybe should be able to work for anything right and you can construct mm -hmm. one of those either with nothing which takes no no values or just which takes a value of that a whatever you've picked for your a and the reason we need the just is like uh, uh hoops that we have to jump through in order to to like you said construct that data there has to be a unique way to produce a maybe there has to be a path to get there and um, right. there's no like classes to group those into, uh, nor would you particularly want that. I mean, you could you could have a system where you where you group it that way, but it's just a, a unique way of getting a maybe through the just path. Right. So so I can't just say I have an a or nothing. Right. It has to be a just. It has to be a just a. It can't be or nothing, nothing or a because then yeah. every a sort of is implicitly a maybe also, which is kind of weird. Oh, okay. So you want to be able to pattern match and kind of break it apart and say, how did we get this maybe? Which path did we go down to get this maybe? Mm -hmm. And so you need a named, unique, like, data constructor that you use to get that maybe so that you can pattern match and break it apart and say, which path did we come down? Because you might have, um, what if you have a, um, a data type for, like, payments for, like, I don't know, your kids, you know, a school, a, a school has, like, a, a fair, right? And they're selling tickets. Or they have, you have a system by which, you know, schools can do this. And someone might... Um, have not paid. They're registered, but they haven't paid. They registered and they paid. Um, they registered early. Partial. Oh yeah, they paid partial, and so the type is you know int or uh, float or whatever. Or they paid full and the amount. So you have two like float values that if you just said they are either unpaid or float or float, you'd have a pretty hard time telling which float path they went down to get to the payment information. So you have to be able to distinguish them. Mm -hmm. So they're either paid in full float or they're partial pay float. Right? They both have the same payload sure. from the type's perspective, like they're the same, you know, thing that they're holding. But then when you destructure mm -hmm. or when you pattern match, you can tell which one they came through. Does hang hang on a second. Hang on a second. Does just make sure that it's not nothing? Um are you saying can you have Can I have a can I have a just nothing? Yeah, and then you'll have a maybe that contains a maybe. You have a maybe of type maybe. Because the does, a, does that make the it maybe a maybe? A? This isn't it just like nothing or nothing at that point? Well, no, it's just nothing. <laughs> it's it's nothing or maybe it's nothing, a, isn't it's it? A, it's a maybe type that is definitively something, 
So it's the just case. Mm-hmm. And the something that's inside it is the nothing case of another maybe. Of another maybe. Yes. But if it were not the just, that's that's when we that's when things would get loopy. I don't you can't put anything inside nothing. It doesn't take any parameters. No, no, I mean if you if you did not have a just there, so if it was just nothing or nothing at that point. I'm not quite following you. You, so you can't have the you can't reuse the same name. The, the just of part basically like sets it apart, right? Right. Well, that's like with my two floats, right? You either paid in poor, pay, paid in full, or partial pay. Right. You have two floats there. You got to tell which float are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. The partial pay one, or maybe there's a um, maybe there's a student uh, ticket that you paid for, or a uh, you know like teacher like a staff ticket that you paid for, and they both have floats attached to them. But you need to tell like which one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they might have very similar values. So that allows you when you pattern match, when you do your switch statement to say, well, in the case of you were a student, okay, we have your amount and we do this with it. In the case of you were staff or faculty, we have your payment and we do this other thing with it. I mean, there's nothing saying you can't do the same thing, but you would like the option to at least do different things. So the ability to like make very finite uh, decisions. So um, based on how the data was created, constructed, you can pull it apart and handle it later because because you kind of like we tend to do things in two different ends of our applications right we have one part that's like generating values and we have another part that's like taking those values that we generate somewhere else pulling them apart and doing interesting things with it mm-hmm. right would you say that's kind of fair one part that's so let's slow down for a second you said uh one part that's generating values and another part that's taking the generated values and doing something like one part is is that's you know once again pulling something from a database or pulling something from our sure. JSON file or or whatever we're doing so one part's doing that and the other part is doing right, work with that. Because you, you're not going to like create a class, stuff a bunch of values in that class, and then immediately read the values right off that object. No, yeah, you're usually doing something in between, right? So you're going to stuff them into a structure, hand it off to some other part of your program, and that other part of your program is going to pull that structure apart. That, that's a very common pattern, right? And when I say pulled apart, I don't mean destructively. I mean, grab I mean, things off. When you of say it. pulled apart. Grab the yeah. first name, grab the last name, grab the whatever. Yeah, okay. It's going to work, work with it. Yeah, exactly. So... What mm-hmm. some types allow you to do is they allow you to model that they give you like almost like a, a common ground between these two parts of your application. The part that needs to generate the values, you say, okay, here's the three ways of generating a value of this type, payment status or something. And then on the on the tearing it apart side, mm-hmm. you say, okay, here's a very convenient way to say you've handled all the possible like variations of this piece of data. And then you can step back and you can look at that and say, does this capture my domain? Does this accurately reflect my domain? And often these ADTs have very, like if you've ever um, messed around with like domain-driven design in that kind of area, um, you'll see that uh, ADTs are almost like the perfect complement to like domain-driven design. Like when you talk about expressing your your domains, uh, like you, you talk in the language of the domain and things like that, you can embed I mean, all that. Domain is in like whatever it is that your business or organization or whatever. Yeah, the problem space that you're working in. Yeah. You'll find that ADTs are a very good tool, not the only tool, but the combination of some and product types gives you a lot of flexibility in very um, accurately modeling the problem space that you're in, in a way that you could almost show uh, like a business person, like someone, or let's say you're a subject matter expert or whatever, whoever you have access to, all of the ADTs that you've created, your data, and say, does this look right? Am I missing anything? And they could just look at that and go, hmm, you're not accounting for this aspect. Like when someone closes their account, we don't just need to know the date. We need to know the reason because that's very important. And you go, oh, the reason. Well, what are the reasons? 
And then they go, what's well, A, B, C, D, or E? And you go, yeah, and here's the reasons. And now we have another sometimes Exactly. I, I, th- I remember kind of skinning over, skimming over uh, another Scott Paulson talk where he kind of goes over this. He showed like a poker game or something, if I remember. And he expressed it using F sharps, you know, ADT. Oh, this is when notation. we had like um, a suit is this and a card is this and therefore a deck is like all the combinations of like suits and cards right or a card a card is a suit and a rank something like that and, and he paired those together. and when he when he he modeled like the whole thing out to describe poker in its entirety i guess and the, there's more to it than just those things but you know it's it's like the static like here's all of the things and how they relate to each other and there wasn't i mean the only thing that you had between them were like dots and pluses for notation and that was about it right in in terms of how he was um in terms of like the actual code that he'd written because he was just he just here's the here's the type signature for the whole thing here's what all the adts look like i don't follow the pluses part uh, for some types i don't know if that's what f sharp uses but it was it was basically just those two glyphs uh, right i think um i think they use the pipe okay the vertical thing. They don't use the plus. And, and one of the things he was getting at with it is like, look, I can actually show this to a business person and say, does this look legit? Oh, joke, jokers aren't a suit. Whoops. You know, that sticks out really quick. Or they're missing from your ranks. Right. Or, or if you have to describe a wild card, like, uh, is that a suit? Or is that a card? You know, and, and, that, and that's something that you can describe, you can talk about together as opposed to just like, well, I think I understand what you're saying. Let me go back into the dungeon and, and, talk to the to the machines again right if you have um if you have something called ranks that's like listed out you know ace two three four up to king and then you have suits which is you know four suits and then you have a card which is a suit plus a rank and you go okay we're good we're done and someone comes along says what about jokers and you go hmm And, and like like you're saying well it's not a suit it's not a rank so maybe you say a card is a joker or this combination this and this isn't to say like we're trying to do the DSL thing where it's like very Englishy API type stuff. It's just simply just here's how they re- these things relate. A card can be these things, right? A, car- right? a card is one of four suits. A suit is composed of these cards, you know, individual card Ooh. values or whatever, right? And and a suit value. And it gives you a, the ability to sit back and say that looks correct. Like you can you can kind of almost non-programmatic programmery like take off your programmer hat and put on your like i know something about this domain hat and look at it and go yeah that looks right right to me and that's an incredibly powerful thing even if you're the product owner i mean if you're just making something for yourself like aaron you work alone but you still have to reason about did i actually capture this domain right like they're asking me to do this thing am i modeling it correctly Mm -hmm. i think that comes up i would hope that comes up a lot for most people oh yeah where you're working and you just even if you don't know anything about what you're doing you need to know something about what you're doing you have to know at least enough about the domain to model it to the degree that you're talking to say, okay, does this make any sense whatsoever? And sometimes you don't only have to talk to your subject matter expert or, or someone, but uh, yeah, I do hear you on that. And this aids dramatically in that process. So it helps clarify your thought. It helps you communicate with subject matter experts and it helps your compiler assist you in saying, Hey, by the way, you haven't handled these cases. You either need to say default case. I don't care. Like big bucket that everything goes into or you go, oh, whoops, I forgot about that. And so, you know, a classic example of this would be um, you have your three cases or whatever of your account status. You add a fourth case, uh, similar to an enum in um, like C Sharp or whatever. 
uh, mm-hmm. you now have to go to every place you were basically doing a switch or you know case of kind of thing, and you need to go handle that case now. You need to go add some sort of way of dealing everywhere with it. That, everywhere that's referenced. So that you're properly handling oh. all of them. I don't mean to take us totally off the rails, and if the audience is a little confused here, everyone, I understand <laughs> your confusion. Um, I'm having a bit of a hard time too, but I'm going to bring up one other thing that I've come across and just ask if it relates here. I don't remember where I came across it. It might have been in talking about uh, in some of the reading for Elm. It might have been in just some other reading I've done. Um, I'm going to declare like a, a type, and it's it's going to be based off of string, but it actually only accepts these values, and here's the name it has. And so you can de- kind of declare there's this small subset of values and say, okay, here are the here are the va- like. This is this is related in terms of like constraining the domains for sure, right? Like, um, yeah, like like we can say that people have an age, and we have to have an age constructor, and you can throw a number into it, and it ensures that the that the age is a positive or zero number. And you would even say rather than it being an integer, it's of type age, right? And now you're dealing with an age from here on out. Yeah, and I don't recall exactly what that was, but it feels like that's relevant, and it kind of is. I'm checking in to see like is that something related to what we're talking about here sort of in the sense that i guess for this situation that's sort of saving you the trouble of like literally enumerating out all the possible values mm-hmm. like zero through 120 or something or whatever you want it to be mm-hmm. um in the age sense yeah in the age sense yeah exactly well, and you can you can do like a range in your pattern matching you can say okay well i want to handle you know zero to 50 and do this and then 51 to 100 and i don't go above 100 or whatever i'm actually not familiar with too many languages that have this feature okay. so i'd be interested in where you ran across that like certainly okay. that's not like out of the box on elm or haskell or anything mm, like that okay. haskell has this liquid haskell system by which you can put constraints like that on mm-hmm. um maybe you ran to this in like a dynamic language where that's a little easier I thought to do i had done this in haskell we'll have to look into it and find out so maybe we'll get back to the audience on this one so a common thing for this kind of situation where you're like um Age is a number, you know, an integer or whatever, but realistically negative numbers don't make any sense. So the way that's usually handled is by using an abstract data type, the other ADT. Mm. And what you do is you um, you make the data constructor for age. So age is like data age equals age int. So there's one way of getting an age. It's the data constructor age, which looks really confusing the first time you see it. But the thing on the left side that equals and the right side that equals are different. The thing on the left side that equals is the type. The thing on the right side that equals is the data constructor. So Boolean is true or false. There's two data constructors to get a Boolean. But you can have data types where there's only one data constructor. So data age equals age int, meaning the age is parameterized by an int, right? Which is the, the value to go with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that you'll see that a lot in code. Uh, so then what you do is you you don't want people to actually just be able to make their own ages because it's just an int, right? So they could say age negative 30, and that would be, from the type system's perspective, that'd be just fine. So what you do is you make the, you don't export the data constructor from your module. You make it basically the equivalent of private. This mm-hmm. is a little like implementation specific, but pretty much all languages I'm thinking of have this capability. You keep that private. And what you do export is a function, a function called make age or create age or you know, whatever you want to call it, that takes an int and returns a maybe age. Okay. And so you, you pass in an int, and if it's zero or greater, up to whatever your constraints are, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, make email or whatever you want. And uh, it if it passes the test, great. It puts your int in and constructs a new age, and then hands that age back as the just part of the maybe. If it is invalid, it gives you back a nothing. So that's that's one way of sort of only getting values that 
should be kind of constrained when you're using a much more broad data type like interstring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you again, we're talking about we're greatly lowering our number there, and we're also you also get a little bit more information when you know that a number is an age rather than an int, or you know a number, or you know a string is an email rather than a string. Yeah, and then I think e email is one of the examples they gave actually of saying no, this isn't actually a string, this is an email. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like technically it's a string under the hood, but you're treating it as an email. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. As far as as far as the um, actual engine is concerned, yes, it's a string, but it's still constrained by whatever you say the constraints for an email are. Right. So logically, I don't mean email. to get us off topic here. I don't know if this is actually totally related to our, but we are talking about lowering the domain in this example here. It's definitely related, related in the sense that we uh, took a very general thing. And like you said, we constricted the number of possibilities, but it's also, we're talking about um, being in the language, you know, of the domain of the problem mm -hmm. space that you're in. And, we don't actually, as humans, ever talk about instance strings. We talk about ages or balances or stock numbers or Even emails. I think emails, exactly. And emails a string. Sure, it's textual, great, or URLs, right? But we don't say like, "What's give me a string of the website you want to visit?" No, give me the URL of the <laughs> website you want to visit, right? Uh, here, here's a really relevant one: like meters and feet. Mm -hmm. And distance. Those you shall not combine those without going through a conversion process, or you screwed something up. And if they are both sort of um, technically, they're both you know ints or real numbers or whatever you want to do. Just like when you're like doing algebra with it, it's like you ever do those little conversion things where it's like you know I've got like this feet to meters ratio, and when mm -hmm. you when you multiply it against whatever it is that you have, like like the actual units themselves can cancel each other out. You have to do something where it's like I, I'm going through a conversion ratio where I'm going to like I have a meters to feet function. It will only take it will only take a meter, and it will only return a, a, a feet. Even though the underlying representation is like a float or an int in both cases, you now have a function that goes from meters to feet, or feet to inches, or whatever. And the and the and the compiler guards that. I tried to you tried to add meters to feet, even though they are backed a hundred percent just by an you know an integer or float value or whatever. I I could I could hypothetically at the machine level just do this and it would work just fine. Semantically, it doesn't. Right. It, that's the important part. Semantically, it does not make sense. In your problem domain where feet and inches are things, those are not the same thing. Right. And so that is, again, incredibly useful when you're looking at something and you see a function that's like inches to whatever, you know, like, okay, you know exactly what you're dealing with here. Right. This external uh, user account system and my internal user account system, right? They're they're modeled by two different things, and I have to have a conversion to get back into the other one. Yeah, a common a common thing I've seen is like um, unvalidated data and validated data, or like a protect like a, you get in form input, mm -hmm. and you don't want to necessarily just like throw that in your database because what if they do shenanigans, <laughs> right? SQL injection, yeah. right? So you have um, like this this is sanitized and this is not, and then sanitized yeah. input exactly, and then all of your functions are written in terms of sanitized input. And the only way to get a sanitized input is by running it through the function that takes unsanitized input and produces. And, the, and then your your business logic only knows about sanitized input. That's actually, yeah, that seems really useful. And, the, and then it's like you are, by the type system, guaranteed to not get unsanitized, assuming your sanitization algorithm's good. You know, you, you are guaranteed to never get unsanitized input into your business logic, right? Now, real quick. I do want to point out that if you modeled this as data input equals unsanitized input or sanitized input, both taking you know a string or whatever your input is right here, that wouldn't work. You could not then say, I take in a value of unsanitized input and produce a value of sanitized input, because those are both data constructors 
for the type input. Like these would have to be two completely distinct types, not two variations on the same type. Right. Like that, that, that distinction, like that bit me for a long time. I kept, kept wanting nothing and just, like I kept wanting to write type signatures that said, I take a just A <laughs> and do something with it. And it's like, no, no, you take a maybe, which has two cases and you pattern match on it and you do something with both. If of them. our audience like just gets this right off the bat, that'd be awesome. But if they're anything like me, I could see a whole episode going into like the subtlety of um, like a record versus a data type, I think is what we're getting into sure. here, right? Uh, a little bit. I mean, am I, am I using the I mean, using my terms here? I, I guess I'm just saying, like, um, so you can model them as two separate types, or you can model them as two variations of the same type, two two ways of getting mm-hmm. the same type. And if you care about telling the difference and only allowing one through, then you do need to make them separate types in in most of the type systems that I'm familiar with. I, I was just kind of throwing that out there because that bit me a couple times, and I was like very confused for a while. I think I'm kind of following what you're saying as well. As the as the novice here that hasn't really worked with it, you're just saying no, you can't accept the just. You have to take you have to go you have to take yes, a step you have back to take the maybe exactly take the maybe if you're because you have to deal with both cases. You can't just there's actually there's actually nothing that works with a just a. It doesn't exist. It has to work with the maybe. The just thing is well, it's it's just kind of there to like to, to help hold that that maybe juice together. Yeah, it's just a constructor. So again, think of it as maybe is the class, the like final sealed class thingy, and nothing and just are the two static methods on it that produce a maybe. So you can only write type signatures in terms of the maybe type because there is <laughs> the the static just function is clearly not a type. And a, and a constructor in functional languages aren't like they construct objects. They're like they're just functions that make data. They construct values, right? Because we only kind of like have values. So that's why they're called like data constructors, which maybe is not the greatest term, but it's been around for a long time. It's stuck. It's just important for us to point it out, right? But I mean, yeah. so if you had a class that was a read-only, like it every uh, it had read-only fields, um, and it took all the yeah. those values in its constructor, that really wouldn't be different, would it? Like you're constructing a new mm-hmm. value of that type that's a value, it's, so it's immutable. So the constructor here is not super far off you can kind of think of it in OO terms. No, and, and and when you do have these constructors like this it means that like the only way to get to this is to use this constructor same same way of any object in oo right right so i mean the the i think the name's pretty appropriate it's just that there's a subtlety of like no actually all of these things are just functions in yeah i guess you could think of it as um what if you could have a a class in oo land that had multiple constructors <laughs> that weren't just named the same thing yeah. as a class or initialize or whatever it's called in your language I'm going to ask about instances in, uh, are you guys familiar with instances in C-sharp? Never heard of them. Um, well, hold on. So, so you have a class which defines the structure of something, and then you instantiate a object that came from that class. And so you have an instance of a class, which we call an object. Yes, exactly. And normally with these, you have a private constructor. And you, um, if you ever want to, in this particular case, you can only, it's for when you only want one copy of an object at a time. There's, there's kind of just one instance of the object. Is that is this again um, related to the related? So when you make this private constructor, is that kind of an example of something we're doing, where like the only way to get a copy of this object is to say, "I want this instance," or is that not the same thing? Um, it's not the same thing because there's no um, in most functional mm-hmm. languages there's no concept of passing references. You pass values, and whether the language under the hood chooses to pass them around as references. Um, when you have immutable values everywhere, mm-hmm, um, you don't yeah. care about like reference versus value semantics. There's only value semantics. 
So you can't say like make one and then give me the same it's one the same every time yeah. because making a new one I'm and handing you the original one that, are well, the same we've thing. We've talked a little bit about how um, for some of these things, the, there's there's a private constructor, like your data constructor is totally private. And um, in that case, you're also a private constructor. It sounds mm -hmm. like there's not a big relation. So Yeah, the, the private constructor was just to force you to go through one of these. Like, like mm -hmm. in, in a world where you could have multiple constructors that were named, you wouldn't need the private constructor mm -hmm. thing anymore. But in, in C-sharp as it is today, I would make a private constructor okay. and then two static methods called just and nothing. But if I could have two constructors okay. called just and nothing, then they wouldn't have to be private, right? The private thing was just to force you to go through either just or nothing and not to create a maybe and mm -hmm. pass in and then the value. Uh, has value true yeah, okay. and then null for the actual value or something goofy like that. That's all that was about. And then in the case of the abstract data type where you don't um, export the data constructor but you have a function that produces it that doesn't have a particularly good oo like connotation because you wouldn't do that in oo i, I guess that is sort of like um mm -hmm. you'd have again a static function on your class called uh make email and you'd pass in your string and you would have to get back a maybe okay. yeah that same that same idea if you wanted to get this email type that we to get a make email that gives you back a maybe of email mm -hmm. right it's got a private constructor, so you have okay. to go through its static function. And it's not, yeah, there's not really the tools to help you do that in C Sharp, but I think there are. Actually, thinking about it, that is not that awkward. That doesn't seem that bad, actually. I think we should wrap up here. Audience, if you have any questions, please come join us on the FP Chat Slack community, the LambdaCast channel. Email us at contact at lambdacast.com or follow and then tweet at us. Uh, at LambdaCast on Twitter. And with that, I think we'll bid you adieu. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. Closing comments. How many how many programmers does it take to change a light bulb? Mm. How many? None. It's a hardware problem. Thanks everyone. See ya.